Welcome to the Royal Caribbean Blog Podcast, a weekly look into the world of Royal Caribbean cruising. I'm your host, Matt Hodgeberg, and this is episode number 382. There is nothing quite like the Oasis-class ships that Royal Caribbean has, but coming up with a game-changer like an Oasis-class ship is no simple task. So many of the innovations that we take for granted today were classic cases of trial and error, including the Central Park neighborhood. Today, we'll hear how Royal Caribbean came up with the concept for Central Park and how it almost didn't work at all. Here we go. I love hearing how Royal Caribbean works behind the scenes because I think most people miss out on just how much hard work goes into designing a new cruise ship. Cruise ships are not ordered off a catalog by any means, and they're as intricate to design as any building on land with a lot more considerations and hurdles to overcome. In today's Wayback Machine, we're going to head back to the mid-2000s when Royal Caribbean was designing the Oasis-class ships. Kelly Gonzalez is Royal Caribbean Senior Vice President of Architectural Design, New Build, and Innovation, and she recently shared the story behind Central Park during a webinar with travel agents, and I thought it was such a cool story that I wanted to share it with all of you. It's incredible to think that Central Park almost never happened because of the engineering barriers that Kelly's team ran into. I hope you enjoy this story as much as I did. It's really my pleasure to be here today, and of course, there's not another topic in the world that I enjoy talking about as much as the design of our ships. So it's something that I've been very close to over the last 22 years that I've been with the company. And um, I, of course, I, I work with all of the brands with the corporation, but my first brand and my dearest brand is Royal Caribbean International. And it's the brand that I, I know best and I've known for the longest. Um, so we'll go, I can speak first to the very first slide and it, to really start the story uh, next, is, is really talk about when it all began. It might surprise some of your listeners that actually the idea of the Oasis class ships started in 2001, in spring of 2001. It's kind of hard to imagine that sitting here in 2020 and understand that that was when it all started. And it was just really a seed of thought. We had only had the Voyager class ships in service for maybe two years at the most. And we were already thinking of taking a very big leap towards something quite different. And the um, executive vice president of Maritime in our company, Harry Kulavara, he's a, he's a naval architect by education, and he already had this vision in his head about taking a ship and um, looking at doing something bigger, not because of size, but because of the many ideas that were kind of um, flowing out of our minds that we could do with an opportunity like that. So the first seeds of thought were sown in spring of 2001. And then, of course, um, uh, in September 11th of 2001, we all know what happened. And it caused us to, it caused the world to change. It caused us to change. And we really had to pivot very hard. And so this this project that had been on the table was one that kind of got placed on the side burner for a little while. And in fact, it is the impetus for us to go back and take a look at the Freedom class ships. So if 9-11 had not happened, the Freedom class ships really wouldn't be in our, in our repertoire of fine, finely designed ships to offer our guests. So that really became the uh, beginning of Freedom class ships. And by 2003, we were in a place where we were able to think once again about the project, and in fact, we gave it a name. Uh, we called it Genesis, Project Genesis, and that was really the name of the project when it all started 
And we also had a, a vision, a very, very simple vision, which was game over. And it was really signaling our um, enthusiasm about the market being ready for something big and bold and, and um, powerful. <clears throat> and that was, that was really the beginning. Next. <clears throat> so from there, in 2003, we spent six years as a company um, with many collaborators working with us to conceptualize the design and the drawing and the production and the delivery of Oasis of the Seas. So with six, six long years from start to finish, it was then and remains the longest amount of time that we've ever really dedicated to a new first of series ships. Um, it took all of the creative talent within the company's organization. It took a number of futurists that we worked with at the time there was a lot of research that went into megatrends in terms of where the world was going, especially following after 9-11. We had a lot of architects involved. In fact, in the beginning, we started with several architectural competitions. So in fact, uh, Boardwalk, as you know it today, uh, Royal Promenade, as you know it today, uh, Central Park, as you know it, those were all architectural competitions. And we had companies from all over the world competing. We had four or five in each of the areas that we were studying. And, of course, only one was the, was the winner at the end of the day. And the rest of the design was very much managed through something that we call charrettes. And I don't know if you've ever heard the term before, but it actually has its origins back <clears throat> into the late 19, uh, 1850s out of Paris with the Beaux-Arts schools for architecture at those times. Um, and it really uh, is referencing carts, horse carts, where architectural students would be working on their projects to the very last minute. And as creative people are, the ideas are still churning and the ideas are still happening. And although the carts were intended for them to load their projects on board the cart and take it to the college for presentation, in fact, the architects would pile into the cart along with the models and their projects, and they would continue developing it on the fly until they would arrive at the doorstep of their college or their university. So that creative process is a very um, heated process, and it builds on collaboration, and it takes advantage of different perspectives and different thoughts and, and ideas, and it all kind of comes together in one big jumble but through the charrette process, you usually find the right ideas and the right opportunities out the other end. And so charretting is something that still exists in the architectural industry um, today. And we still use it as a fundamental part of our design <clears throat> on all of our ships. But certainly it was a very important one to the Oasis class. And I think it was the, the, the deepest amount of charretting that we had ever done on any of our ships. <clears throat> Next. That effort also led us to what many of you know to be one of the um, differentiators about the Equasis class ships, which is the whole idea and notion of the seven neighborhoods. And so <clears throat> these, each of these neighborhoods in and of themselves became a very deep dive focus, unlike in the past where we would have an architect that's assigned to do a very large part of the ship we really purposefully tried to identify a 
dozen or more architects so that in any one neighborhood, it purposefully had three or four or five different architects and designers working in there so that the outcome would very much resemble the neighborhood. It was purposeful that there were different styles and different approaches and different schools of thought. And of course, the hard work was figuring out how to make sure it was all with, on the basis of a master plan. There was a lot of effort put into what we call the master planning, so that there was some framework around how we looked at it. And a big part of the job was then to coordinate all of these things so that it didn't just all slam together, um, but rather it was kind of seamlessly stitched with one another and transitioned from one design space to another design space to the next. And the design phase for designing these seven neighborhoods as well as the rest of the ship alone lasted over three years out of the six year, six year process. It was, it was very intensive. Next. <clears throat> In addition to really stretching our design for uh, the fundamental work, uh, there is also a process that we call special projects, the special projects process. And it's one that we reserve for ideas that are particularly novel, meaning that either it's never been done before on a ship or it's never been done before at all. And Central Park is one of several examples of special projects that we had happening on the Oasis-class ships. It also included Aqua Theater, the Boardwalk Carousel, Rising Tides, but Central Park is a particularly interesting story because that whole um, endeavor was both a success story that became a failure story that became a better success story in the end. And that's why I thought maybe I would share this particular one with all of you today. So we started Central Park Project as any other special projects which usually is driven by a lot of um, experts in their field. So we had never done anything on a ship before that involved live greenery and trees and grass and things of that sort. So we did have an architect competition. An architect was awarded the contract out of the UK. It was Atkins Design at the time. And the original design concept for Central Park actually was not like what you see today. The original concept for Central Park did have the split atrium where you could look up to the sky and it had the atrium view staterooms looking into it. <clears throat> it also did have the idea of the skylights that brought daylight down into the Royal Promenade. But the essence of Central Park when the design was started was actually based on a series of rolling hills. They were structural hills that um, had, were, were covered with grass. So it was grass covered rolling hills with skylights on the side. And that was what actually had won the competition. So as a novel process goes, we bring in all of the experts to work with us on something like that. And that included landscape architects. We looked for um, a company that we thought would be really bringing the best expertise in a um, Caribbean environment and all of what that entails seasonally. We also brought in um, scientists. We ended up working with a group from the University of Florida that were very specialized in 
uh, horticulture and, and other aspects of what it is that we were doing, we had to spend um, an extraordinary amount of effort working with structural specialists because we were literally cutting these giant holes in a steel structure that typically is not perforated in any way. So the fact that we were breaching that with skylights was something that was very daunting for the conventional ship engineers. And we had to bring in some unusual structural engineers to work with us on that. We had to bring in specialists that work with us in dealing with, for instance, agriculture on board the ship. And what does that mean in terms of critters, you know, bugs and things of that sort. And what does that mean when the ship pulls into port and there are restrictions in having, um, you know, living, living um, animals on board the ship? What does that mean? Also, our ability to fertilize and not have a situation that um, complicates water systems um, and certainly is respectful of the environment and our oceans. And so how would we capture water runoff that might have fertilizers and things on it. So it was this whole broad range of, of complexity that was built in the concept. And uh, one of the extraordinary um, um, efforts that we took on with Central Park to test out the concept of the rolling hills with the grass was with respect to a mock-up because there was a lot of uncertainty about grass living in an atrium environment where the sun really had an uh, apex high in the sky for a limited number of hours a day. Um, and if you could go back a slide still. Um, and um, basically, basically, we constructed, we constructed a, they constructed like a piece of machinery where they mocked up the hills of, of grass with real grass on it. And they, the machine was like a long axle of a car that had wheels on it, but these wheels had shoes lined around the rim of the wheel. So it was simulating people walking up and down the grass, down in the atrium where they then simulated the lighting effect. So this limited daylight, how would the grass grow? How often would it have to be watered? And then when you would introduce the idea that our guests, that of course we wanna expose this to our guests too, what would the foot traffic be up and down the, the grass? Well, to make a long story short, um, that test failed. That test showed that regardless what species of grass that we approached, and no matter what we would do with fertilization or anything, watering or anything else in this, in this atrium, the grass was not going to be a surviving concept. And it was in December, it was right before the Christmas holidays, and we reached a point where we had to pretty much abandon the details of that concept. We really were committed to living up to the essence of the concept, but we had to abandon the details of that concept and go back to scratch again. And that's when really Central Park became really more of a park. And we went, we spent four weeks over the Christmas holidays working in the office in London and trying to rethink how we could change the concept of the design and change it pretty drastically with the time towards production counting down. And the central park that you know today with more of the flat walkways and the skylights that actually stand up in the sky and capture even more daylight. And the fact that it is even more park-like is really a story that you know tells how we 
are willing to take bold steps. We understand there's risk, but we take a, put a lot of effort into mitigating that risk. And we're not afraid of failure. Failure usually leads us to a better place. And I think the Central Park is a story of how we ended up actually in a better place with the design than where we thought we were going to land when we started it from the very beginning. So we're really very, very open to those ideas. And if we go to the next slide, actually so much so that we became so confident about it that we decided that we needed to be able to find a way to convey what we believed about our Central Park in a way that those who are not trained to understand design and architecture would be able to envision it the way we could envision it in our head. So this slide is actually showing you a one-to-one -one scale mock-up of the entire Central Park that was built in Turku, Finland, where the Oasis-class ship was being built. You're looking at a very large ship hall, amongst the largest ship halls in the world, and basically by printing the design on canvas, they had it strung up from the trusses in the ship hall. We had uh, the facades of the balconies printed on it. Uh, we were able to augment that with lighting and with sound. And in fact, the images down in the lower part of the slide is showing our board of directors and a number of the people at the shipyard and a number of the people in the, in the company enjoying a dinner, an evening dinner in Central Park with music and lights um, in Central Park so that we were able to bring that alive for them, for them to be able to understand and regain their trust behind the design and the design process to pull off a concept like Central Park. The next slide shows really then the Central Park under construction. So you start to see that from concepts, from the original rendering and the mock-up, that it, we are able to take a concept and once it's proven and we've gone through the risk mitigation and we've kicked all the tires and looked at it inside out and outside in, that we are able to really stay very true to that and deliver on the concept as it is when we presented it to our executives. And so that is just one of our many stories and that's the story of Central Park. Um, the, next the next slide has a couple smaller stories that are kind of interesting um, in a way because you know our the Royal Caribbean National from the very beginning in 1970 was a company that believed in design and innovation. But of course, the scale of our ships back then was something quite different. Oasis was one of a series of step changes that happened in our history. So Song of Norway was the first ship introduced. It was the first purpose-built cruise ship ever done in the industry. Up until then, the cruising was based on conversion of transatlantic ocean liners, and they weren't necessarily designed for Caribbean cruising. So Song of Norway was the first, and then the next big step change in our, 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 our company's life um, was Sovereign of the Seas, which was the first mega ship. And it's really interesting how both of those aspects converge in this one slide and converge with, with Oasis of the Seas. You've, many of you have seen the boardwalks on our ships. They're fabulous in and of themselves. The shows are over the top and no one does a better job with them than Nick Weir and his team. Um, but when you look at the um, image on the left, it is the 
Of course, the Aqua Theater with the dive shows. And above it is the Crown and Anchor logo. Well, the story I want to share with you is that that Crown and Anchor logo, by coincidence, we were actually um, converting Sovereign of the Seas at the same time we were nearing the delivery of Oasis because we were transferring that ship to another brand in the company. And so one of the things that was removed from Sovereign of the Seas was the giant crown and anchor logo that was on the funnel of that ship. Against the scale of Sovereign of the Seas, the crown and anchor logo was huge. But here, we actually removed it and reinstalled it in the aqua theater of Oasis of the Seas. And here, it's more like a jewel. It's like an emblem that hangs there in the middle of the aqua theater, but is actually the funnel crown and anchor logo from Sovereign of the Seas. The other little story that it ties in on the right-hand side, um, a little bit in the upper, upper, right underneath the big overhang above, you see two small little half-round um, sound and light control booths right above the rock climbing walls. So you see a rock climbing wall on the left, and you see a rock climbing wall on the right. And just above it, you see a small little half-round booth on each side, and this is what Nick and his team use to run the fabulous shows that you see every day. And actually, it, you'd be, it's really amusing to know that if you took each of those half-circle elements and you combine them together, the scale of those two um, elements are equal to the size of the original Viking Crown Lounge that was cantilevered off the funnel of Song of Norway. That was one of the first innovative features on Song of Norway was our Viking Crown Lounge. And it, it was a bar that only sat 30 people. And the scale of it, of course, then was very large. But against the scale of Oasis of the Seas, it's really, really, really tiny. It's a pinprick. And it barely serves the functionality for the sound and light um, control mechanisms for, for the aqua theater shows. So that's another, um, I think, story about Oasis. And on the next slide, it just shows you a little bit more of the ship under construction. And um, part of what you see here is snow because these ships are under construction in extraordinary conditions. And when the summer's around, it's terrific. But the winters come by, it makes construction very challenging. Um, so this isn't, you know, long before the delivery. This is probably in March before the delivery that we had in, in fall the following year. And the next slide shows that ship proudly coming into Port Everglades, which by then was September, and of course coming into South Florida. Uh, there, notice there's no snow on the ship any longer. We had the helicopters out. We had the pilot, pilot boats out. And this was just a proud day. I can't even begin to tell you what a proud day that was when six years later we were able to all um, see the fruits of our labor coming together in such a spectacular way. And um, the next slide also kind of tells a little bit about the span of time from 2009 from Oasis and of course from Oasis and went to Amour, but then we had Harmony of the Seas delivered in 2016 and Symphony delivered in 2017. And of course we have Wonder coming soon then in um, the beginning of 2022. So, Oasis is also a story of timeless design. Like when we talked, when I talked about futurists and I talked about megatrends, 
it's a very hard thing to know what lies in the future. It's a very, very hard thing to know how um, consumer behaviors change or consumer desires might change. Um, and, you know, as Richard has often said, we never go after ships because of size. We go after ships because we're creating experiences and we're creating memories. We really want them to be able to stand against the test of time. And I think there's nothing in the industry that comes anywhere close to what Oasis-class ships have meant. If you think from Oasis to Symphony to Wonder, nothing has been able to stand the test of time in the way that the Oasis-class ships have.